Oaths Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to episode 10 of the Thoughts Hermes podcast's fourth season. It is a pleasure to welcome you for this new show, released on March the 8th, 2020, on International Women's Day. My name is Rudolf, and I am your host, speaking to you from a small town nearby Austria's capital, Vienna. The subtitle of today's show is Sacred Sleep, and we will in this episode welcome an interview guest who really knows about the phenomenon of sleep and all its esoteric and occult implications, UK independent researcher Sarah Janes. More about her in just a minute. I sometimes wonder if it is really necessary to keep repeating the information about the Thought Hermes podcast at the beginning of each episode. More and more of you are now regulars of this show, returning customers, and they know their way about, don't they? And finally, all I can say, if you are already listening to this, you have found us, right? Okay, so... Once again, a welcome to all the new ones who are here the first time. But I will, in the near future, make a separate page on the website with all the necessary information about this program. So everyone who's interested to find out more about us can go there and look it up. So the only thing I need to say now and in the future is go and discover our website, www thoshermes.com that is t-h-o-t-h-e-r-m-e-s dot com because there is where you find all previous episodes links to many of our podcast providers next to the possibility to listen right on the web page itself or on an external player you find there or you download and listen whenever you want and I give you a hint to go to the YouTube channel of the Thought Service podcast for an audio-only version there as well, if you prefer YouTube. Don't forget all the options for feedback on the website and also elsewhere, like on Twitter or Facebook. Once again, I love to get your feedback. Okay then, friends and listeners, but there is one more thing which I need to repeat each time. Please support the Thought Service Podcast. We need your input, your ideas, your thoughts. We need you as an audience, but we also need your financial support. So on the website, you'll find two buttons on the front page. One is a donation button that gives you the possibility to make a one-off donation to us via PayPal. And there is the Patreon button, which will bring you to our Patreon page. Subscribe as a patron there 
from $2 per episode limited to $6 a month, you can become a patron. And that would really be something we greatly appreciate and need. Thanks a lot. There's yet another way I would like to mention by which you can support us. Speak about us. Let your friends and other interested people know about the Thoughts Hermes podcast. We need to increase our weekly listener number by just a little more. And we then will be eligible for corporate support. So if you really have no means to support us personally and directly, that's fine. But get other people to become regular listeners. This is a great way to help us as well. Download numbers are steadily going up, but the sooner we reach that support threshold, the better. So spread the word. Thank you. Music now. I've recently discovered a young Austrian female artist who is about to produce her first album. And five days ago, she has released her debut single from this album to come. The artist's name is Mageia, and her song goes by the name of Apophis, a name that for many of you practitioners out there will ring a bell. The song is telling us a story of the eternal cycle of light and darkness, of life and the death, even of all things that are in extreme opposition to each other. Sometimes you fight to rise again from darkness, and sometimes you triumph before you fall again. Inspired by ancient mystical stories and metaphors, this song gives the listener the opportunity to interpret himself. I find Magea's music fascinating and I'm looking forward to her album. Stay tuned. I'll let you know when it will be out and maybe then also do a presentation. But for the moment, here we go with Apophis, Magea's debut single, released on dust March the 3rd, five days ago. Enjoy! <laughs>
Apophis by Austrian artist Magea. Debut single freshly released, which will soon be followed by her first album. Sacred Sleep is the title of today's episode. Yes, sleep and all those subjects around it are an important part of esoteric and occult work. Lucid dreaming, astral travel, sleep induction, a magical diary which contains dream diaries, etc. That's all very interesting subjects for all of us. Sarah Janes is based in the United Kingdom in Hastings, not in London, as I erroneously said in the beginning of the coming interview. And Sarah is an independent researcher with a particular interest in dream culture in the ancient world and today. So do you know what a sleep temple is? Well, you will learn it in today's episode. As always, we speak also about the life and background of our guest first, and we learn how Sarah discovered and developed her special interest and capacities in this subject from a very early stage in her life onwards, and how through pure coincidence she became a searched-after speaker on these topics nowadays. Well, it was coincidence in the beginning, but of course afterwards it was her talent and her knowledge. Regulars of the Thought Hermes podcast will remember her short talk with Ursula from the O'Culture Conference in Berlin on our issue about two and a half months ago, where Sarah in Berlin held a great workshop. So, let's learn about how we should go about creating dreams. Yes, that is the term Sarah also used and which I find really fascinating. As always... Half into the interview, which altogether will last a bit over an hour, I will come back to you and we will together listen to another piece of music then. But for now, come with me and meet Sarah James. Here comes the interview. Today, the Thoth Harmonies podcast is again traveling to the United Kingdom, and we are meeting there with uh, a very interesting personality. And on, we were going to talk mainly, but not exclusively, about the main uh, about a very interesting topic, which will be lucid dreaming, the question of sleep, dream, astral travel, all of that. And I am very happy to welcome here in front of the microphone of Thoth Hermes. Sarah Janes. Sarah, hello. Good afternoon to you in London. Hello. I'm actually in Hastings. I'm in right Hastings. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. That's yes. All right. But it still is the UK. <laughs> it's the heart of the UK as far as the I'm heart concerned. Of the, UK, the, the battle of Hastings for yeah. those who remember that one. <laughs> exactly. From school. I don't mean from living there. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, well, great, Sarah. Thanks for giving us the time today and for talking about those topics. Um, This is an exciting and I think a topic that interests many, many of our audience here. Um, Most of the people listening here are rather well acquainted with the Western esoteric tradition, but this is a topic that is being talked about quite a lot, but often also, I must say, rather superficially, and I'm glad we can go in depth into that uh, with a specialist that you are today. Mm -hmm. Before we do that, uh, it would be interesting to me and to our listeners also to 
learn a bit about you as a person. What what is your background? Where do you come from in that field? In for that, what you are? The, I, I read going to say Croydon then. But, uh, uh, okay, no, no, no. Not, no. <laughs> uh, I read a phrase in on the biography of you that said she has been obsessed since childhood with dreaming. So yeah. I, I find that's a good starter. Maybe yeah. uh, what obsessed you? Well, when did it all start, and what made you the Sarah Janes that you are today? It might have been a cabin bed. I think having a cabin bed. And um, I also have had this theory since I was small that you have a better quality of dreaming if you um, have a bedroom on your own. I noticed my friends that shared bedrooms when I was a kid didn't have as exciting weird dreams as me. And I did put it down to like maybe not sleeping as deeply or being overly influenced by another person's presence in the room. I found this to continue in my own personal life as well. I much prefer sleeping on my own for dreaming purposes. Right. And, um, but what age was that? I mean, I have a colleague, a podcast colleague, you probably know who I'm talking about, who always asks, have you been a weird kid? So yeah. for one time I'm asking <laughs> that question as well. Um, I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't say I was especially weird, but I have, I can't remember not having dreams that, that made me feel like who I am. I'm a massive part of my character and my worldview and my unconscious. I've, um, had lucid dreams since I was a kid, always absolutely loved my dream world. It was like a sort of fantasy escape uh, type activity for me. I was brought up in a kind of boring town. I was brought up in Croydon. And uh, for me, the exotic landscape of the dream was like the perfect creative expression. And I saw it as a fantastic creative expression. Um, and I can remember... A lucid dream, I remember a lucid dream sticking out to me as a small child being like the first different dream that I had that was like, there was something different about the state of consciousness. I, I was at primary school and I dreamt that I was a black cat sitting on a rocking chair. And it was a very simple dream, but I became kind of conscious of the fact that the, the state that I was in in this dream was a unique state of consciousness. I felt amazing and I felt every kind of hair on my body and uh, the pads of my paws, my motion on this rocking chair. And I had this amazing experience of an absolute presence in the moment. And um, I suppose maybe I was at the age where I could intellectually define it at that. I, I'm not sure. But I also remember my journey of, of dreaming and, um, you know, having dreams when I was, maybe I was like a baby or a toddler that were quite empty, white spaces. And then as I developed a personality, the, the space of my dream world became more and more filled in. There was architecture, landscape, the spaces expanded. There were, it was populated by people. And I remember very, very early dreams being almost like white rooms with not very much in them. And um, as I grew older, them slowly filling in. Right. Um so you said when you were a small child, when you grew older and that, can you give us just an idea when it all started, at least what you remember and mm. in what, in what age things developed into, into what basically? I think probably from about seven, seven or eight, maybe a little bit younger, I started to um, find myself in this what I would define as almost like alternate reality or like a different mm. dream realm. And this was a place that I used to love going to. And, um, I really loved Alice in Wonderland when I was a kid. And I wonder whether I read that or I, you know, was read that very young. 
And I actually think that sort of the foundation for my ascetic dream world has been laid down by books that I was read or that I read myself when I was a child. And um, I always really loved reading. My mum made sure I could read before I went to school. And so I was reading really good books when I started school and I, I loved reading books and I loved the imaginary worlds that they created. And so my dream landscape was, um, I can kind of tell now where the various aspects of it came from. And it was a combination of my actual real environment in the world in Croydon and the literature that I was reading. And it was this kind of like overlaid with a kind of exotic, uh, uh, artistic, um, veneer I suppose so for example I dreamt a lot about going to drink this water from a magic sacred spring it was like a big dream about this all the time I still dream about it now and I realized recently that that dream came from there being an actual spring in Beddington Park that had this kind of urban legend of being this uh, magic spring water and I, ch- I changed the kind of uh, geography and the layout of Beddington Park to have this kind of like exotic version of it. So I was like traveling around the world, but actually the kind of essential elements of it were all there in like a place I went to every day in my childhood. Right. But did you, did you, or at what age did you realize this was something special? Often kids, when they have experiences like that, they, they at first think, well, every kid has that. You know? I, I thought uh, everyone had that for ages. It wasn't until I was um, maybe even in my twenties that I realized uh, people didn't have necessarily a really exciting dream life. I wrote um, my dream diary for the Idler magazine and my friend Matt read it and was like, oh my God, I never have dreams like this. And he told me the sorts of things he dreams about. I suppose I tended to gravitate towards other people that shared their dreams as well. So I assumed that everyone had like weird and amazing, like traveling lucid dreams. And, um, I do remember reading about lucid dreams in a newspaper when I was a teenager. And actually it was Stephen LeBerge, you know, Stephen LeBerge, sure. sort of a famous American mm. dream scientist. And he was, he had written an article, I can't remember where it was for now, but it was about his uh, Hawaiian dream retreat and the use of these Nova dreamers. And I remember thinking, wow, someone else is like talking about this stuff. I was really amazed. And I kind of liked the idea of the tech side of it as well. Two of my, my, two of my big things with lucid dreaming when I was a kid, because I did realize that this was quite a special, amazing thing. Like I felt, I mean, one of the things I always talk about in my workshops is Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're in a loop, when you have a lucid dream experience, the, uh, the most powerful, uh, aspect of it for me. And the thing that I love about it most is that sensation of euphoria and bliss you get of just being lucid. It's amazing. And it's mm-hmm. a, an important accompanying dimension to the experience, I think. And, um, so in these lucid dreams, I felt amazing. I felt better than I felt in waking reality. And I remember saying to my dad once when I was a kid, uh, that I would rather be in the dream world than in reality because the dream world just made me feel amazing. Uh, so that was really the main reason why I kind of 
enjoyed lucid dreaming so much was because you had this euphoric aspect to it. You mm-hmm. could do whatever you wanted to do. You could fly. You could kiss a boy in your class that you really liked. You know, you could do, you know, I used it a lot for wish fulfillment, basically. I'll get, right. like, I'd give myself Christmas presents with like Father Christmas flying from my bedroom window and like delivering these amazing presents. Um, so yeah, I just, I thought it was a great and, gift. And, and and did you have success at the time? Yeah. With your wishful yeah. dream? Yeah, 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 it was great. I mean, yeah. I've gone through, I don't do, I don't uh, lucid dream every single night now, but when I put a conscious effort into do it, then I get it, I get there quite quickly. But I went through phases, I've been through some phases of intense lucid dreaming to the point where I started to literally see the matrix falling around me because the differentiation between the dream consciousness and waking consciousness just doesn't feel any different at all. And it, and it's actually a little bit scary because I think that in order to exist and not go mad in the real world, you have to be quite grounded. And, uh, I think I was uh, in danger of losing that groundedness, which I later on went on to have a child and that made me feel very grounded, but also I lost my dreams because I wasn't sleeping. So I, I realized I had to kind of reinvest in the dream side to, um, have a balanced half up in the air and half grounded type of experience, which is more satisfying for me. Now you, you said quite a number of things that I would like to, to go more in depth on. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but before we do that, um, can you maybe help us um, to define a few things? Because those expressions like lucid dreaming, for example, you said several times, or I don't know if astral travel for you comes into the same range or if that to you is something completely different, but you, you're going to tell us, could you maybe define what lucid dream is for you um so what yeah what, what is a lucid dream how would you what are the components that you need to have for it uh, for me it is identified by um as i was describing that sense of euphoria and bliss of utter presence in the moment um Scientifically, I guess I would express it as, as being a conscious dream, one in which your frontal cortex is activated and you're able to apply critical thought to the dream world. But I think like anything, there are kind of like degrees and variations of it. Like sometimes um, you can be just on the edge of a lucid dream and often that's how people kind of recognize the term because they get so excited that they wake up in their excitement or um, they are lucid as they're drifting off to sleep or lucid as they're coming out of a dream. And then there are those lucid dreams that are deep in the middle of an REM uh, phase of mm -hmm. sleep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Would, would um, a certain type of shamanic travel also for you be part of lucid dreaming or is that something completely different? I think that... Um, One 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 aspect of lucid dreaming that I find really fascinating is the mechanisms behind the memory experience that you have in a lucid dream and a dream state. You have this different kind of experience of memory, which feels more like a recognition on of your part in the whole integrated picture. If you kind mm -hmm. of see what I mean, it's like a remembrance sure. of everything that exists rather mm -hmm. than uh, remembering a point of linear time, which obviously doesn't exist anyway. There is no linear time. It's an illusion in our waking reality. So I'm fascinated by the way that works. And I think that all of these things are an, are a dimension of a maybe more um, archaic memory function that's atrophied within ourselves. And, right. uh, 
I think that, you know, two of my things, as I was getting at earlier with childhood lucid dreaming, were I really thought that if I could lucid dream exactly as I wanted to and have perfect control, I would be able to transcend death. And I also thought that um, I would, I could invent a machine that would record my dreams so I could watch them as a film. And uh, I haven't done either of those ones yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that all good ideas. Yeah, good ideas. You, you should go ahead with yeah. this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if I may, just I don't, don't don't normally talk about my personal experiences here, but um, just to give you an example, because it interests me what you say about that. When when I do shamanic travel, I f get the impression that I observe myself much more from the outside. It's like a very conscious thing that, but that I can't steer somehow, mm. right? It's very it's weird as, an, as, a, as a, a very nice but very weird uh, double situation, mm. as opposed to what I experience as astral travel or lucid dreaming is more. Um, a bit more floating, a bit more um, let go and mm. and 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 be free. But maybe maybe I'm mixing up things. Uh, I'm not a specialist, so I'm asking, how, how, uh, what would you say to that? Uh, with regards to astral projection, mm. I think they are. Um, I think astral projection for me is something different to lucid dreaming because lucid right. dreaming is when you generate. Um, f from within yourself, an alternate reality or another realm. And mm -hmm. astral projection seems to be when you just come out of your body um, and you are somehow able to uh, roam around the space that exists in your reality as you would see it when you're awake. Um, and you can access other realms potentially, and then we may switch from those different states. Because I've mm -hmm. had sleep paralysis or astral projection type experiences and lucid dreams that kind of merge into one another. So I do right. think they feel different to me. But that's why it's important that we define that. And thank you for doing that now, because I think that's exactly the mix. I made that mix. And I think many people mix those things up a bit. Mm. And thank you for, for, for making that clear. When did you decide that beyond your personal nice, mostly nice experience with that, um, you would want to make something out of it for others. Uh, how did that happen? How did that all start? Um, I think it started by accident, actually. I think someone asked me to give a talk and I think they actually thought they were talking to somebody else, but I thought that's my area of expertise, so I'm going to do but it. Did, did they, how did they know that, that you had those experiences? They didn't. It just was a happy accident. Mm. <laughs> so I, it was, it was, um, you know, uh, serious imposter syndrome, but quite legitimate imposter syndrome because they actually did think I was somebody else, which, but it all worked out great. It worked out great. And then I think what I've discovered, I really like, cause I love meditation and I'm really into guided meditation and visualization. And I discovered that I love doing uh, sleep hypnosis and guided meditation. So I've, I started off doing a lot of talks and I'm very interested in the ancient culture of uh, dreams and especially dream incubation and sleep hospitals in Egypt and Greece. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of research into those things and I still do. And so I started to give talks about lucid dreaming. And then I realized that actually um, quite a lot of people were coming to my talks that never had a lucid dream experience. And didn't. And I think it's, it's a weird thing to talk about if you are talking to people that don't know anything about how it feels to be in a lucid dream. So um, 
I decided that I would rather do kind of experiential type workshops for the most part. So giving people an opportunity to lie down and, um, be guided through their hypnagogic experience, for example, and things like that. So mm-hmm. I've got um, a workshop this Saturday, actually, where I'm going to do two hours of guided hypnagogic meditation and give people the opportunity. Cause I think often people just don't give themselves enough time um, to uh, lie down and actually experience falling asleep. And I think that's why I got so into lucid dreaming when I was a kid, because I loved going to sleep. I loved the process of falling asleep. And I would try to um, expand that uh, traveling into the dream realm as much as possible. And I think that um, we all go through those phases of hypnagogia, but if you're really tired, you've just been on your phone or people fall asleep listening to the radio or watching telly, they miss it. And, um, that's really the, like the way in for me. Like I love the wild technique, what's called the wild technique or the wake induced lucid dreaming technique more than any other for lucid dreaming. Like the, can you, can you explain that a little bit? What, so what that technique is? Awake induced lucid dream, or this is how I practice dream incubation. Um, and how I believe they, uh, they were able to heal people in sleep hospitals is that you, you kind of learn to control the hypnagogic state, which is the, sorry, I've got a poster that's just falling off the wall while I'm sitting here. Um, <laughs> why, why is this happening? <laughs> it's funny. It's like uh, the great wave as well. And it's like falling slowly off the wall. Okay. So um, it's uh, hypnagogia is that, is that state that you travel through before you fall into a dream or sleep mm-hmm. proper. So, you know, often we might even hear our name being called or a doorbell. We can also have audio hallucinations. We'll see things and we'll think weird stuff that it's not linked up. It's not really very conscious. And, um, you can use this as almost like a tunnel, like traveling through a tunnel, if you imagine, or you imagine like Alice in Wonderland falling down the rabbit hole, you fall down this rabbit hole and all of this stuff is kind of washing past you. And you can either at this point, like turn over and get really comfortable and just fall deep asleep or stay. What, what makes a big difference I find is lying on your back, stay in that position where you're kind of suspended between full sleep and awake and um, find yourself eventually like fully conscious, but in a dream. Do you have an explanation why lying on the back is so important? I think it's just not the ultimately comfortable position for human beings to lie in. So uh, you, your awareness is just that little bit more alert to uh, a bit more, the visuals. In, 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 in nature, it was a bit more dangerous probably to be yeah, you're more exposed open like that. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Even things actually with things like people sleeping naked or with their pajamas on, people have different kinds of dreams then because they're a bit more exposed and they're a bit more vulnerable. You know, it's the reason right. why people have um, different kinds of dreams when they are sleeping somewhere they're not familiar with and different sorts of dreams or experiences when they're sleeping with a partner. Um, and a first, you know, a partner that you've not slept with very much so far, like that can be really yeah. um, difficult and affect your yeah. dreams. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff. Like your body's really sensitive to 
stimuli that's coming in from your environment when you're asleep, which you yeah. process visually. So it gets incorporated into the visual content of your dream, which is interesting. Like, so one example I might give is if you're lying on your hand and your hand goes numb in the middle of the night and you're dreaming, you may dream that a dog's bit in your hand or something like that. So you, okay. you create visual content because of the, the information you're receiving from your senses. Because they must make sense for your brain. What did well, you receive uh, a message or? Visual processing faculties kind of switch over to visually generating content uh, mm. from the sensory stimuli that you're receiving, not just outside your body, but also inside your body. I mean, one of the worst things for nightmares, I think, is getting hot and memory foam mattresses, which are my particular right. uh, pet hate. Memory foam mattresses, I think, are really awful. They make you too hot and then you have nightmares. Okay, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sounds sounds familiar, but you don't consciously think about those things normally when you when you're not when you're not in it like you are. Yeah. So then, okay, so this was the big mix up, and you get asked to to do that talk you did, and then what happened then? I mean, uh, you got it reinvited uh, immediately, or yeah, I basically did like a series of talks around the country. And, um, and then it's just been from that people have asked me to do other events and I've started to do festivals. Um, I also run my own club. So I meet a lot of other speakers on the circuit, like yourself running this podcast. I probably know yeah. a few of the people that you've had on this podcast and we all sure. meet each other at the same sort of events. Yeah, and then, that, that world is very yeah, small. Yeah, the world is very small. Mm -hmm. um, I might mention at this moment that you already were on this podcast uh, um, when you were in Berlin. Yeah. Uh, my friend Ursula had you for a small interview there for our culture pickings, as I called yeah. it. And because you had a nice talk over there and a workshop, I think. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Talking about the small world. <laughs> okay. So and then but uh, but you're talking much further. I mean, to my knowledge, you are today really one of the very few experts in that field, in that field also of our Western tradition, who works very regularly, who does those workshops, who, who has that experience and all that. How did that all happen? How did you get so deep into that more and more? Um, I suppose I love researching and finding things out. And I've always had an interest in ancient culture. And I didn't really realize um, that there was this dream dimension to ancient culture. It seems, you know, it seems obvious and intuitive now, but mm -hmm. I had never really found much of this out. So one of the things that did happen, this was a huge thing, actually, and did kind of change my direction Uh, David Luke was a, a guest at my Explorers Club. I don't know if you know David Luke, but he is... Uh, I have to stop you for a moment. You just mentioned the Explorers Club. Oh, yeah. Uh, you have to tell us what the Explorers Club is and what you do there, because okay. I think that's important to what follows. Okay, yeah. so the Explorers Club is a lecture club that I run down here in Hastings. And uh, after I had my daughter... I, th I, didn't, I didn't go to university when I left school. I started working straight away in, um, I worked in the TV industry when I first left school. But um, I thought I might like, because my life had become a little bit more kind of stay at homey and domestic, that uh, I would go to university. And uh, so I started to bunk into the University of Sussex and sneak into lectures. And I think first of all, I wanted to do anthropology, but I've always been really interested in the mind and how the mind works. And I started to sneak into these uh, uh, neuroscience lectures. 
And one of the lecturers there, Professor Anil Seth, is the co-director of the Sackler Center for Consciousness Science at the University of Sussex, which sounds really like futuristic, high tech and fantastic, but it's like a prefab. <laughs> it's not very impressive at all. Um, and uh, I also saw that he was doing a talk upstairs at a pub. So I went to that talk and that talk I noticed um, in contrast to the university talk that was a lot of sort of bored looking 20 somethings uh, doodling in notepads that Anil Seth was more relaxed. The audience were asking better questions and more engaged and uh, it was more fun. And so I said to him, oh, uh, if I give you a hundred quid, will you come and do it at my house? And he said, yeah, all right then. So he came, I think he was the first person that came to do a talk for the Explorers Club. I think we started in about 2012. And and I realized, because I promoted gigs, I worked for a recording studio and did gig promotion with American bands, mostly all around uh, the UK, but uh, mostly in Brighton and Hastings. And... um, organizing an academic to come and talk to 30 people rather than getting a load of people in Hastings that don't really want to go to a gig to go and see a band where there's like five bands and you have to do a backline and all that kind of business is much harder to organize. So I just found the Explorers Club like super fun and easy or literally every single person I asked to come and do a talk came and it was really great. So I used to do it at my um, friend's house and um, I made everyone dinner, charged everyone a fiver, and then just gave all the ticket money to the speaker. And it worked out great. And I never had to go to university. So even better. And then I got to choose <laughs> my own. like you, basically. Yeah, I chose my own sort of bespoke education. And what's quite funny is I have like a core, like maybe 25 people that come to nearly every single one. And now we have all this weird niche knowledge about some really like obscure subjects. And it's great. It's like we're always like dropping in like little in jokes and catchphrases from various speakers and it's yeah it's been fantastic and i made loads of friends from it as well so if you're in and around tastings do go and have a a look at the explorers club um tonight i I have it here in front of me on the program it's quite amazing i think it's basically weekly your programming right uh it's we do one a month regularly at a pub just down the road from me but we, I also do workshops and I do, I actually do some children's art workshops working with hieroglyphs and ancient Egyptian right. art and culture as well. Egyptomaniacs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah uh, great. Okay. So, but I, I had interrupted you, but I had to point on to the Explorers Club, but you were mentioning David Luke. So, so. Oh yeah. So David Luke is, um. Uh, a psychologist from the University of Greenwich. He is the uh, one of the sort of senior psychologists at the University of Greenwich, and he, uh, I th- what's his his one of his speciality is like uh, something like um, uh, extraordinary human experience is like his speciality. So he does things like psi telepathy out-of-body experiences, lucid dreams, psychedelic drugs, all this kind of stuff. And uh, he came to give a talk about ayahuasca and psychedelic science at the Explorers Club. And um, we got chatting afterwards about lucid dreaming because there's a lot of parallels with the kind of psychedelic world and lucid dreaming, I find. And um, he was he's really interested in dreams as well. He was just about to conduct this lucid dreaming study. And he told me that there was a sleep temple. He told me about sleep temples. It's the first I'd ever heard of them. And um, he said there was actually a sleep temple in Gloucestershire, a Roman one, at Lydney Park, one that you can visit in the UK. So um, 
I was doing online dating at the time and I was like purposefully trying to seek out archaeologists so they could take me on a road trip to this uh, little temple. <laughs> and eventually that's, I found... That's one of the reasons why you do... Great, uh, date, uh, you ever want to like uh, tour archaeological uh, sites in the UK? Date an archaeologist. I've never thought of that. It's <laughs> genius. You know what? Tinder's great for like career advancement. Anyway, so uh, I've, I eventually found an archaeologist and he took me to uh, Lydney Park in Gloucestershire and it's an, a beautiful little sleep temple there on this amazing like uh, stately homeland uh, it's got a Calibiot spring there it's on a mound actually um, Tolkien was the assistant to the archaeologist when they were doing the digs oh. and um, he came up with loads of his ideas for Lord of the Rings when he was working mm -hmm. on that site mm -hmm. interesting okay and and um, those Not this knowledge of sleep temples, what that that pushed you? Well, you start started to go further and further in your research, and you yeah, that, that's how it happened. Or? It's um as soon as I kind of discovered there were ever such things as sleep temples, I just thought it was the most amazing thing ever, and it really married my fascination for ancient history and culture and dreaming. And uh, also, I mean, one of the big things with especially the ancient Greek sleep temples is I think they had a way to heal people in dreams genuinely because these sleep temple temples existed for such a long period of time. I can't believe they would have existed for so long if they weren't effective for at least some people. I mean, it seems crazy that they didn't work because they existed for thousands of years. So um, and my theories about that is basically... Uh, through guided hypnagogia and kind of like seeding people's unconscious minds, they were able to activate healing by creating a healing event in a dream state. And in particular, if that was a lucid dream state, the body may respond as if it's really happening. Like we know mm -hmm. if a... Um, If a gymnast, for example, practices their moves in a lucid dream state, uh, they genuinely show like physical real life improvements in their abilities because the same areas of their brain have been engaged in that activity when they're lucid dreaming because you really feel like you're present. So they've shown that um, athletes, when they practice their skill in lucid dreaming, scientists have shown that they're then able to like show those improvements in real life as well. Funny enough, I've heard the same thing about uh, singing. I, I was trained as an opera singer mm. and I've heard that same expression long before I knew what lucid dreaming was mm. and that when you do that kind of flow state, let's call it like that, where some people call it like that, um, and you do... You imagine the the, the 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 aria or the song that you would be singing. That actually your your muscles in your throat would move a little bit in the way they should. And well, you that's train, a, you yeah. can train that. You know, that's really interesting that you brought that up. Actually, because uh, one of the areas of research that I'm still really into this, is this idea of recording dreams. And I've been in communication with this dream sleep scientist in America called Daniel Aldis, and he's doing these studies at the moment using electromyography to record and interpret those tiny voice box movements mm. that you have. Because actually when you, if you're lucid especially, but even in a regular REM uh, stream, mm -hmm. if you are talking, your voice box does actually make the micro movements that's associated yeah. with those um, words. And uh, so they're aiming to record dream speech. I don't know how... Um, how far along they are with their research at the moment. But I loved this idea. And when Daniel told me this, I was like, 
God, that's just like mind blowing. It's an amazing new dimension to thinking about stuff. And that night when I went to sleep, I had a dream where I was testing that theory out and I was going, this is amazing. And I could feel my (laughs) voice box moving like slightly. And I was screaming and shouting really loud in the dream. And then I realized as well that it really makes sense of those dreams you have where you are screaming, you're screaming for help, but no one can hear you and only a tiny little thing comes out. And it's because you know that your voice box is actually moving, but nothing's coming out. That that's amazing. That's really amazing. A lot of interesting thoughts on sleep and dream and how we handle it in the Western esoteric tradition. And still a lot to come after this break. But now it is time for another piece of music. And again, this song comes to us from the north of Europe, from Sweden. Ave Air is a one-man project. The music is experimented into life in an attic space recording studio in an old wooden house in the middle of Gothenburg. And the piece that I have selected for today's show is, by its title, a perfect match for our subject. The song is called Dream Simulation and is taken from the album called Sameness of Phosphorus and Hesperus. It is also brand new. It was released back in September last year. So let's get carried away in a dream simulation.
Dream Simulation from the 2019 album Sameness of Phosphorus and Hesperus by Swedish artist Ave Air. From Sweden we now return back to the south of England, to Hastings, to retrieve Sarah Janes, who is our guest today on this show named Sacred Sleep. Among many other things, we will now also talk about psychedelic inducing special sleep form. But next to chemical substances, we will also speak about physical effects like sound and brainwaves. And we'll speak briefly about the interest that Sarah has for ancient Egypt and some other projects dear to her heart. At the end of the interview, as always, we'll listen to our third piece of music for today, Spiritual Escalation, the Understanding of the Being, the Interrogation of the Innermost Aspects of Nature and Human Essence, the ongoing investigation about the great unsolved questions of the world, the truths behind the phenomena, the mainspring of reality, the comprehension of totality, all of this in one way or another can lead to a single monumental concept. Metaphysics, the attempt to permanently explain, dissect and absorb a higher reality that transcends everyday's existence. An eye on the complete essence of the all and, if necessary, even reshaping our mundane world. With this text, Paranoia Department introduced their music. The song that we'll hear after the interview is called Asclepius. Well, you have heard that name a lot already in the interview. Greek God of Sleep. The song is from Paranoia's Department album Metaphysical Hinterland Number no. 1, which was released back in 2014. But before we will hear Asclepius in music, we will hear about him by Sarah James. So let's go back to that interview. Tell our people here what a sleep temple really is, because it's a historical thing. It's not something new, as you just said, yeah. has existed for thousands of years. Um, what is a sleep temple? So in the, um, in the ancient Greek tradition, which is probably the sort of best developed and most well-documented version of the sleep temple that we have, although they perpetuate into some indigenous cultures even now as well, and obviously dream time is very important to Aboriginal Australians and things like that. Mm-hmm. But an ancient Greek sleep temple was usually dedicated to the god Asclepius, who was the son of Apollo. And um, there were places really like hospitals or sanctuaries where you would go to receive healing. Uh, some people, some researchers think that in order to get access to the Asclepians, you would first have to have a dream in which Asclepius came to you and invited you, which quite like that idea, like a dream invitation. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to say whether that's um, accurate or not. Anyway, uh, you would have to be ritually pure before you entered the sanctuary site. And that was quite a, an important aspect of it. You couldn't be really near death or, uh, or close to giving birth or in labor or anything like that. Like anyone who was in too much of a state basically couldn't really enter into the precinct. And um, after going through various sacrifices and rituals of mostly purification, um, and cold water bathing seems to be an important aspect of 
most Asclepians, you'd have to have like cold water dips. So Asclepius may have been like the Wim Hof of uh, ancient Greece, perhaps. <laughs> and then when it was deemed the appropriate or auspicious time, you'd be taken into a final chamber, which was called an abaton. And there you'd be laid upon uh, a couch that was called a cline, which was a, usually a kind of stone bed covered in the skin of a sacrificed black ram. And I think this is an important distinction to make that uh, dream incubation, sleep hypnosis, this kind of stuff occurred on a bed, much more like a, a psychiatrist's couch than a, an actual bed to go to sleep in. Okay. So it really is a kind of meditative practice. So the um, one other thing that is definitely worth talking about when it comes to Asclepius is his symbol, which is a staff with a snake wrapped around it. And the serpent entwined staff is still a symbol to this day of like physicians. And yeah. um and also has uh, an echo in the Kundalini traditions as well, like this idea of the earth energy rising up to heaven and and to the hermetic to tradition, of course, with the her- yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, when you entered the sleep chamber, there may be a statue of Asclepius holding his snake entwined staff. Snakes were kind of present in the temples; they were allowed to move freely all around the sanctuary. And I think this is an important thing to think about because uh, snakes are a really primal symbol for human beings. And I think you would be hard pushed to not dream about snakes if you're in a, a snake-filled temple. And um, uh, another kind of convenient and handy thing was that the the idea the healing was received by the part, by the uh, patient if they had contact with Asclepius, if Asclepius touched them. And the reports of the dream healing in the dream state uh, would involve sometimes things like impossible, physically impossible operations that Asclepius might perform on, on you when you're in the dream state. So when you're taken into this final chamber, sometimes there'd be a statue of Asclepius there and you'd lie on this table and the attendants would kind of guide you into sleep and uh, suggest the healing power of Asclepius in the, you know, perhaps a guided meditation or a sleep hypnosis type thing. And the idea was that when you finally fell asleep or you fell into maybe even a, a hypnagogic hallucinatory type state that Asclepius would come to you and touch you or perform a physically impossible operation. And the snakes were seen as the, a snake was the animal form of the god Asclepius as well. So even if a snake came to you and touched you or even bit you or something like that in your dream, that would be considered, um, having contact with the God directly. Special contact, yeah. Um, what I found interesting here is that you said you have to be cleansed before because, so it's not a healing process. It's not at all, uh, uh, sleep is not here used to heal whatever, but on the contrary, you have to be in a sane and positive state before you enter the sleep temple. Did I get you right? You don't have to be like 100%. But you can't be like near death. That's quite an important mm-hmm. aspect of mm-hmm. them and childbirth. And and, do you have an explanation for that? Uh, it was kind of seen to pollute the healing atmosphere of the sanctuary. And also there's a big uh, element of the sleep temples, which were about positive affirmation of the healing power of Asclepius. And lost causes are much less likely to have a successful 
result in this mm-hmm. respect. So another right. big thing that you would notice going into a sleep temple is the, the amount of kind of dedications and offerings to Asclepius attesting to his healing power. So um, votive uh, votive offerings representing parts of the body that had been healed. So like terracotta legs and right. ears and um carvings representing those body parts have been healed and in text it would be written Asclepius did this to me Asclepius healed me in this way they're called the Ayamata the kind of collection of of dream healing events Mm -hmm. but it is like advertising you know and it would have had a a big impact on the people coming because you know they're surrounded by confirmations of Asclepius's healing power everywhere they look yeah no that that's uh but it is it is related to healing then so, so yeah that's, but the healing event itself took the form of a divine dream rather than um like rest and relaxation although that would have been a big part of it the preparation for right. it would be rest and relaxation and you know most of these sleep temple sites were in like beautiful countryside mountainous healthy locations often mm-hmm. with uh springs i mean always with springs actually it was an important aspect of the 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 considerations for a site one of the other considerations for the site was um the the home of asclepius was said to be epidorus which was one of the biggest sanctuary centers in greece and um snakes from this sanctuary would be taken around greece and um the snakes when released would show the uh temple officials where the new temple should be constructed. So wherever the snakes slithered off to, that was deemed to be the auspicious place. So so sleep and snakes were an important conjunction there. Yeah. They're really, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- that was ancient Greece. And of course, the temple that you mentioned earlier that you visited in, 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 in the UK uh, was a Roman, a Roman site, but who the Romans probably took that from the Greeks and as much from their religion was imported from Greece. Mm. I think that's, that, that's the lineage. But you also mentioned ancient Egypt, if I got you right yeah. earlier. Um, so where does the tradition come from there? Is that through Hellenistic links? Is that also a Greek tradition that moved into Hellenistic Egypt? Or is this an own Egyptian, ancient Egyptian tradition, pre-Hellenistic traditional there? I think so, but I think it was more a, um, it was less a business to the Egyptians, I think. I think there was much, there was much more of a sense of a kind of commercial dimension to the ancient Greek uh, chain of sleep mm-hmm. temples, perhaps. Um, All right. And with ancient Egypt, this kind of idea of dream incubation is something that it is really, really old. This idea of dreaming, um, receiving healing or having contact with the gods definitely predates ancient Greek sleep temples. And actually any temple that was dedicated to a god was seen as a sanctuary where if you dreamt within those walls, you could have contact with a god who was said to reside within that sanctuary. So there's mm-hmm. there's some people that um, would highlight Imhotep as being like the equivalent of Asclepius in mm-hmm. as far as dream healing specifically was concerned. And he was a, a, a real life man who was a physician, architect, real polymath, genius guy who was deified um, later on and who then became uh, divine and had these healing powers when 
when kind of met in a dream. Right, right. So, so this is really the same thing, but in a different tradition, so to speak, right? Could, could we say it like that, the Egyptian, or is it, would you consider that to be something completely different by its origin, by its usage? The Egyptian tradition? Yes, yes. Um, I think it's, I think it's similar, but I think there was this idea that the dream state itself was a portal to the realm in which the gods and the dead dwelled. And so it was much more kind of across the board in terms of if you slept in any temple, you could have contact potentially with the god associated with that temple. And, um, and the gods obviously had divine powers. So healing was one, uh, one weapon at their disposal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, sure. Have you have you researched this question of lucid dreaming and what it means to people and how you also yourself use it? And um, in other cultures beyond the Western tradition, have you, for example, gone to the to the Eastern tradition with that question as well, or did you not yet touch? Yeah, I don't look into the Eastern traditions. I I feel very much like a like an intuitive sense for the traditions of Egypt and Greece and the Western traditions in right. that respect. And I feel that it's part of my heritage as well, like part of my culture. It feels like something I can tap into authentically and um, intuitively because I I feel very much still related to those ideas. And it's the way I think, it's the ascetic that I have. It's, just, it's the... Um, uh, the way of looking at the world that I've always felt kind of most tuned into. Sure. No, I, I can, I can understand that. I was, I just asked because you are such a specialist in the field. I mm-hmm. thought maybe you had, because I, I was thinking of yoga nidra yeah. also a bit as a, a kind of similar approach to, to what you say, but I'm not going to that field now because it's, it's probably leading us too far off what we are speaking here. Um, you mentioned earlier the question of, let's call them in sleep inducing or dream inducing substances yeah uh, or even other things i'm thinking of of uh, binaural sounds mm-hmm. for example who are often used for 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 astral travel but also for lucid dreaming and mm. um, so what's your take on that um, uh, maybe we should separate between substances who are really have a chemical reaction also in you and the other like sound which is more a a, a physical reaction uh, rather than chemical so what's your take on those on those things um well i do make my own like potions inspired by the greek magical papyri and uh Mm -hmm. and on readings and research from ancient egyptian and ancient greek literature and mm-hmm. culture so i make my own dream tea potion that that's pretty much the only thing i drink i do take vitamin b12 and uh sometimes b complex vitamins i kind of think any supplement that improves your memory tends to have a good impact on your dream experience oh, and really? a lot of those things have been quite hit and miss i've tried various dreams supposed lucid dream herbs and they might work once like i might notice a difference once and then not again i think the placebo effect can be quite powerful in that respect hmm. um someone just gave me some glantamine which is a quite popular and well-known lucid dreaming supplement but i haven't tried that one yet i've never i've never i've never taken any psychedelics and so i know a lot of people that 
uh, take a lot of psychedelics. And when I talk to them about lucid dreaming, a lot of them have said, if I could lucid dream all the time, I don't know whether I would take psychedelics. And um, I think really the psychedelic effect is a kind of waking dream. So if you're not really well versed in dream happenings, sometimes those experiences can be quite overwhelming. And like just like psychedelics, I, I really do think as well, the dream experience is something that you do need to integrate and be aware of. I always think that the dreamer is the best person to interpret a dream because dreaming is really an yeah. opportunity to get to know yourself in the sort of deepest possible way. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm completely wrong here, but um, uh, somehow for me, the, the, the psychedelic influence and the world the word lucid are opposites uh, to me because, but, but maybe I'm, I'm wrong here. Maybe I I'm think you could be lucid wrong. in a psychedelic state and that would be interesting. Mm. But <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> see what you mean? Yeah. I wonder, I wonder, you know, cause I haven't taken psychedelics. I wonder how that would, cause I'm sure some people that take psychedelics might say that that's what you are, but um, sure. yeah, it would be interesting to experiment with that idea anyway. Mm -hmm, yeah, absolutely. And, and what about, um, well, physically um, created or induced uh, lucid dreaming, like like the things with hemisync is a typical example, yeah. that uh, binaural sound, but there are others which are similar, but which, which creates something in your brain that is not normally there, basically, right? Uh, or, well which is there, but which is induced artificially. Let's put it that yeah. way. I haven't used those things very much apart from in backgrounds to guided meditations and things like that, but I'm a massive fan of darkness and uh, sensory mm -hmm. deprivation essentially. And I think a lot of the sleep problems that the people that I'm meeting have arise from really poor sleep hygiene, like sleeping in a room where you've got technology devices, things on standby, high frequency hums, uh, messy bedrooms, curtains open, things like that. Like, um, uh, if I have a bath, there's no like windows in the bathroom and I like having the lights off. So it's properly pitch black. And you kind of realize that actually human beings don't often these days spend much time in total pitch blackness. And it's good training for the sleep, for the dream state, because I think, I've got this kind of like theory about why our dream abilities are diminishing somewhat. And I think it has a lot to do with our visual entrainment for looking at a surface or a, a, a device in a flat screen, as opposed to looking through space, like peering into an abyss, like you might do into an obsidian mirror or scrying into a pool that, that kind of uh, soft gaze that you have when you're not looking at a specific uh, object. Right, right. I, I got you. So when somebody comes to you for a workshop or for dream incubation, sleep hypnosis, the things that you offer, um, you help them. That's what you say on your website to become more conscious in their dreams, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's the aim. But what is the, that's the first step basically, because when they get more conscious in their dreams, what is the benefit for the individual when they start using their dreams in that way? What can they, what, yeah, what's their benefit? I think the first benefit would just be having better dreams. Like if you have 
really wonderful, happy dreams, you wake up and you feel great. Like we all know that if we wake up from a nightmare and actually what most people come to me with is anxiety dreams, repetitive, quite boring, really predictable anxiety dreams where they know themselves is like complete self-sabotage. So if you learn how to become lucid, you can learn how to do the things that you would like to do in a dream. And so you do you wake up feeling great if you have a lovely dream and if you become lucid even more so right uh, and and beyond the fact of dreaming is there you know so, so, okay you feel better when you wake up but is there also some like prediction or something more well i would call it something more occult that's a stupid word maybe for that but something more deeper inside, hidden inside you that can be reached th- by that technique? Yeah, I think you have this access to a kind of universal remembrance if you're that right. way inclined. If that's if you think in those terms, if you think in terms of like occult, esoteric, magical type terms, then right. you can do whatever you like in your dreams. Your dreams are quite culturally specific. So depending upon what you're into, it's generally going to be what you get. Um, yeah. Uh, I think that one of the one of the areas of research into lucid dreams shows that lucid dreamers tend to have better problem solving skills and they're more able to sort of think outside the box and see a bigger picture and it is one thing that I notice is you have this incredible overview effect of life you often don't get caught up in like petty insignificant troubles because you have this rich inner life that's really satisfying gives me a lot of satisfaction to have like a rich inner dream life um Mm -hmm. and the other thing of course is it can help you resolve trauma difficult situations you might have had a, a, a parent or a loved one die that you are able to resolve and meet them in a dream and love them and do things, say things, resolve things that you don't actually have an opportunity to resolve in waking life. Even like Mm -hmm. horribly ended romantic relationships, you can get the kind of resolution that you want and it can be really effective. Um, Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, just getting to know yourself properly. So many people put up um, a kind of false version of themselves or they wear a mask and they don't want to admit what they're really like. And a lot of the best stuff of dreaming is like facing what you're really like and learning to love it and learning to evolve and grow and, and um, be honest with yourself about who you are and, and what you're like and how other people see you. You often have an opportunity to see yourself the way other people see you in the dream state. And one of the things you notice about sort of becoming healthier, developing and being on a good path is that your dream avatar is a really good version of yourself. It's like the nicest version of yourself that you really like. And um, I think often people have anxiety dreams where they're, they're not a good version of themselves. They're like the worst version of themselves. So learning to um, uh, become the better version of yourself is a, is a great goal of lucid dreaming, especially. That's fascinating. Um, I, I know somebody who attended one of your workshops and who said that she had, when when you were doing a guided meditation, that she had experienced the things that you were coming to in the guided meditation mm. just a few moments before you actually said them. Well, that's in that state. Time is an illusion, isn't it? So uh, we're probably tapping into <laughs> Good that the true nature <laughs> yeah, of reality yeah. there then. Right, right. Absolutely. So 
everything that you're saying and that you're doing, uh, correct me again if I'm wrong, but um, is something which is quite at the edge between the esoteric occult world and the uh, the world of healing, the world of um, better living, you know, the, mm. a, a, a general a general help. I've uh, always situation. really loved relaxing. I think it's because my mum took me to a... Right. Um, a uh, what we used to call health farms, which we don't call health farms anymore, which we call spas. My mum took me to a health farm right. when I was about 14 or 15 and I was like too young mm -hmm. to go really, but they let me in. And right. I just thought it was the most amazing thing, anything and any opportunity for relaxing, indulging, pampering, all that kind of stuff. I just love it. And dreams for me are this like ultimate creative luxury, relaxing experience. They've pretty much got everything. So my, My real goal eventually is to reestablish a sleep temple hospital type situation where people, where I can perfect the technique that the Greeks use to actually um, enable true healing in a dream state and get a, a number of patients to experience it for themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that uh, let, let us know when you open your food <laughs> temple. That's it. That and of yeah, course, if anyone's got like a spare know. house, they're not doing anything with in Greece. Let me know. <laughs> and exactly, and, and if you have your sleep temple, you have that recording studio of recording. Exactly, yeah, that's going to be essential. Exactly, <laughs> absolutely. No, but um, are you planning to to I don't know to write a book on on, on that subject or have yeah, you I'm already? Still, I, don't, still I don't think you have. Still going on. Yeah, that. You, I'm still writing that. Yeah, yeah. Well, when is it ready? I don't know. No, it might be ages. It's been ages already, but, uh, <laughs> but every kind of year, something new and different happens and, uh, I'm going to do it when it, I'm going to kind of like get there eventually, but things have changed so much from when this idea of writing the book first kind of popped up. I'm glad in I did. Your, your things on, uh, on your side, things have changed or on my side, you mean yeah, also in my the, side. On the kind of areas of research okay. have changed a lot. My understanding of it has changed a lot. And, uh, I now feel more than ever that I'm kind of following my intuition and my instincts on this stuff and then researching mm -hmm. it afterwards. And, um, and actually the Which best possible, yeah. Uh, the best possible way of showing people that this can work is them experiencing it for themselves. And I want to get as many workshops kind of under my belt as possible and have uh, the feedback that I need and get this technique kind of perfected uh, so that I can be super confident that it works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some people who work on dreaming and well, uh, yeah, on dreaming, um, they tell us about experiences with pre-lives or afterlives. So different existences of, well, your soul or what, mm. what, whatever you call it, uh, in another life. Um, do you also work with that or is that a subject that you, you're not touching in your work? I am really interested in that. When I was a kid, I could remember a past life that I had had quite clearly and the memories of that have faded a little bit, but it's an experience that I get again in some dream state sometimes where I feel like I'm remembering somebody else's life or set of events and I'm connected to And, um, it's an aspect of the dream memory I was talking about before. I also had an experience once when I was uh, walking to school and I crossed over a zebra crossing and I suddenly saw the place in the universe where myself and my brothers existed before we were born. And, um, so I had a lot of 
you know, I was always into this stuff because I had unusual experiences as a child. And I think it's carried on really from them. Right, right. And for somebody who who does not live close to where you are, mm -hmm. right? But who is interested in in that kind of, of, of work and on 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 sleep and and learn about it, uh, do better, create dreams, as you said mm -hmm. yourself. I like that expression, create dreams. What would you suggest to them? Because if they can't visit your workshops, what, what, what would be a path to go? What can they do for their own sake? Well, there's lots of information and people out there that are doing dream things. I think um, it's the, the oldest, most obvious recommendation when it comes to dreaming is writing down what happens in your dreams is massively important. I actually think that the written language and dreaming has uh, an unusual magical type of relationship whereupon language is able to manifest dream content. And, uh, mm. and I even wonder about the implications of typing as opposed to writing with a pen or pencil, um, affecting mm -hmm. dreaming in the way that it has done in the last 10 years or so. Uh, the act and the art of writing and creating shapes and creating words and being very conscious and purposeful when you write them uh, has a quite profound impact on dreaming. And um, when you do write down your dreams, you do have to go through this process of like remembering them. And in that process of remembering them, you commit them to a conscious waking reality. And you begin this kind of journey, this sort of cyclical feedback loop of you write down your dreams, you think about your dreams and you generate more dreams to come in the future. So it seems like a sort of really boring, boring, straightforward um, tip, but writing down your dreams is definitely the number one excellent way to have good dreams. Right. What you're saying is interesting about typing and writing them by hand. Um, I am a man of the word, so to speak. I write a lot. I have a lot to do with thing with writing. And to me, it is important to write because of the by hand because of the tempo. Yeah. Be, uh, the speed, it's you know, lovely, it's, isn't? Much, it's like meditation. Yeah. It's like a treat now. <laughs> Absolutely. And I only use fountain pens yeah. or pencils yeah. because other devices you can write too fast. Yeah, you're so right. And well, I've just learned, I've just started learning uh, hieroglyphs. So I've been using reed mm. pens and ink and it, it yeah. feels like meditating. It's amazing. Absolutely. It slows you down. And then, I mean, the hieroglyphic system itself is like a whole other conversation of why um, hieroglyphs are so powerful and magical and the ability that they have to transfer into the unconscious and to generate dream content is huge. And I've noticed that since I've been practicing them, you engage different parts of your brain when you mm -hmm. write in hieroglyphs as opposed to uh, the English or the, or the uh, Western alphabet that we're used to. The Latin, yeah, sure. And also, I think that's one of the reasons why the Golden Dawn, for example, insisted that their uh, students learn uh, the, 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 the Hebrew alphabet. Yeah. Uh, to a lesser extent than hieroglyph, they have the same 
the same meditative effect, yeah, the yeah. same way of visualization yeah. and that, that you have in hieroglyphs. Absolutely. The hieroglyphs, I find like when I'm thinking about them, they engage these like different ways of thinking and bring them all together, which is, is really unique because they are pictorial. You think in very different ways when you write them down. So for example, like uh, the word for wise is seer. And it's represented by a section of uh, a piece of mat or a piece of fabric. And you can see that we get perhaps the word seer from Zia. And the, the piece of fabric is perhaps a representation of being wise, being like part of the fabric of the universe or part of the web of knowledge or matrix, you know, the matrix of intelligence. Matrix. And so yeah. you, you thinking all these different types of ways, you're thinking visually, you're thinking mythologically, symbolically, you're thinking representationally, you're thinking of what the thing looks like, but it's engaging and using all these different kinds of, um, different types of thinking which I really right. love. And, uh, you can see because that, because the symbols are so powerful that they get into your dreams really easily. And I do think that probably, you know, after accounting, like tallying sheep heads or whatever, uh, dreaming was probably one of the first things to ever be written down. And the, the mm -hmm. art, the act of writing them down is probably what created religion because people were having transcendental experiences in the dream state. And until they were written down, they, they couldn't really become a, a, um, mythological or a sort of spiritual religious doctrine. Reality, exactly. So, so ancient Egypt is for you something that you're fascinated by, isn't it? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, 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 I can tell. So next time we'll speak because unfortunately our hour is already oh, over. Yeah. It's really <laughs> passes always so fast. Um, but next time we'll speak, we have to speak about ancient Egypt. Yeah, excellent. I'll <laughs> do some more swatting up. <laughs> yes. Well, a final question for you. Any plans, um, ideas, anything that you're going to approach in the near future that you would like to talk about and announce here or something that we should we be well, aware doing of like a series on the lookout? Of, series of festivals. So um, I think I've got a Kundalini Festival in Mallorca in June and Noisily Festival. I'm hoping Boom Festival in Portugal um, and... Uh, the Explorers Club is a, a regular month, first Wednesday of every month in Hastings. And I host other speakers talking about a variety of different subjects with that. And then uh, I also have a little dream potions shop on Etsy where I sell my recipes and my nice. spells and things like that for good dreaming. But yeah, if anyone wants to visit my website, you can see pretty much everything that I do on my website. Yeah, and of course, good reason to go on the website of Thought Hermes because all the links to Sarah's website Yeah, there's a sleep hypnosis track that. on there as well. So you can like, even though I'm not exactly. there, you can try my sleep hypnosis. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you should, you should. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. I know it's, it is Wednesday when we record that mm -hmm. interview. So you are hosting tonight the Explorers Club and thank you for having done this interview. So briefly before you have to go out and do that, uh, do that. Uh, so shortly before you have to go out and do that uh, hosting there. Thank you for that. And thank you for a fascinating talk and You're for a lot welcome. of insight in your, in your work and in your ideas and thoughts. That was fascinating. 
Thanks for that. And well, good luck with all your projects and um, well, hope to be together sometime soon and talk about further things then. Thank you very much for having me. Well, pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you.
Asclepius from the album Metaphysical Hinterland Number no. 1 by Paranoia Department, released in 2014. Many thanks to Sarah Janes, who was our interview guest today, for telling us so much about what sleep does to us in a metaphysical and esoteric way. If you want to know more about this subject, get in touch with Sarah or maybe attend one of her workshops in the UK or elsewhere. You can find all the necessary information and links in the show notes of this episode on the Thoth Hermes website. Now then, this is the end of episode 10 of season 4 of the Thoth Hermes podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed. And I hope to have you back as my audience next week with episode 11. If all goes well, my guest will be Tobias Churchin. Tobias has been on this show already twice. He's the first to return a third time, actually. In season two in April last year, we last talked. Then it was about his book, The Spiritual Meaning of the Sixties. And before that, in April 2018, about Alistair Crowley in America. So you might almost say it's the annual return of Tobias, who is not only a prolific writer, but such an interesting chap and good talker. And this time at the center of our talk will be his latest book on Alistair Crowley, Alistair Crowley in India. A topic known to most of us, but so far we have not really had a lot of deeper insight into those years that the great beast passed in India. And Tobias Churton will help us with that. I said, if all goes well, because poor Tobias and his family were suffering from the consequences of those heavy rains and floodings in England lately, we already had to postpone our talk for this reason, but hopefully we can do it now this week to present it to you next Sunday, March 15. Otherwise, be assured I'll find something else to present to you, no worries, and Tobias will return a bit later. But for the moment, all is set for next week. Now, I will say goodbye to everyone here. It was a pleasure to have you, and it will be a renewed pleasure to have you back. Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.